Alex was seven. He had a teddy bear named Tony. Tony had been with him forever. Tony was with him back when he had all sorts of surgery, and nobody was sure if he was going to pull through. But Alex did pull through, and afterwards, when the nerves of the family were still jangling, Alex continued to carry around Tony for years, sleep with Tony. When he was seven, he took Tony with him to Disneyland. And when the family got back home to San Francisco from Disneyland, Alex's parents unpacked the bags and looked for Tony. And Tony was not there. Alex's dad, John, tells the story. So Alex was in the room, and uh, we told him, it appears that you know Tony isn't here. Um, and, uh, and it took him about a minute to really realize that uh, Tony was gone. And at that point, he said two things. First thing is he said that he couldn't imagine life without Tony. And the other is, um, he said, I feel like I've lost my spirit. At that point, you know, what's a parent to do? You know, what do you do? So they call the hotel, and the hotel says over the phone, they have not found this teddy bear. And so John flew down there the next morning, tried to be a good dad, rented a car, retraced the family's path, made his way to the hotel. After waiting for a few minutes in the lobby, a security guard came and said, well, Mr. Holtzman, we have bad news for you. Uh, We know what happened to the bear. And they explained that uh, a maid had uh, seen the bear, apparently uh, in the garbage, and uh, that he'd been thrown away. And so my immediate reaction was, well, that's great. That's not bad news. That's good news because at least we know where he is. Uh, and he said, well, no, you got to see the problem here. And we went around to the back, and uh, uh, there was this huge sealed dumpster with a compactor on the front, literally the size of a semi-trailer, and 25, 30 feet long at least. They looked at it, and there was literally no way into this dumpster. John started to despair. And I started asking, well, you know, when is the next garbage pickup? And they said, well, it's a day from now. I'm thinking, what are we going to do? And just as we were having this discussion, the truck arrives to pick up this this giant dumpster uh, a day early. And, uh, uh, you know, this is kind of an amazing thing because if I had gotten there 15 minutes later or 20 minutes later, the garbage truck would have been gone. A squad of hotel employees was deployed to travel with John and the garbage truck to the recycling plant to search for the teddy bear. And you know, there are only two possible attitudes that adults would have towards this particular mission. One, they would be into it. Or two, they would think that John's a nut. And incredibly, none of them thought that he was a nut. But why? Because almost all of them were parents. And at some point or another, almost all of them had been in the same or a similar situation. I mean, you you couldn't be a parent without having dealt with your kids dealing with loss, you know. And it's so horrible. Um, And, yeah, I mean, uh, I think everybody rallied to exactly that uh, cause. It's interesting because I, I think that a lot of uh, parents get get to points at different points in their in their child's lives where they where they they want to intervene and they feel like they will not allow fate to hurt their child. 
Absolutely. And, and they if, will simply do whatever they can to stop fate. There's no question. And, and you know, if you've uh, ever had a, uh, a child, you know, who, who almost dies, you know, it means a lot in a way to be able to protect your kids from, you know, from that kind of thing. Well, on this Father's Day, we bring you stories of dads trying to protect their kids and kids trying to protect their dads. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, the protection racket that is parenthood. Our program today in three acts. Act one, Paddington's Day at the Dump, the story of a man, a small toy bear, and tens of thousands of pounds of soggy garbage. Act two, trip down memory lane, a son takes his father on one last road trip to jog his dad's failing memory of his own life. Act three, Age of Enchantment. Writer Lawrence Weschler and his daughter Sarah talk about something that he did intending to be kind, intending to protect her from disappointment that inadvertently broke her heart and how she saved the day for the two of them. Stay with us. Act one, Paddington's day at the dump. So John Holtzman and the hotel employees follow the garbage truck that's hauling the dumpster away. In his car, four conscripts. And at this point, essentially, this story becomes the movie Saving Private Ryan. And you know, why don't we have some of the music from the movie just to set the right mood? Somewhere in Southern California, there's a little bear named Tony, and these four recruits are going to get him out to assuage the grief of one American family. Okay, so we're in the car, and there is this kind of silence. We, I, I, did, uh, I made a deal with everybody in the car. I offered each of them $100 for the person who, who found the bear. Uh, and we were, you know, kind of plotting strategy of, well, okay, when they open this dumpster, you know, how, how are we going to find the bear? Where is he going to be in the dumpster? How many days of garbage is there? And, you know, and uh, so we finally arrive at the uh, recycling plant. And uh, first of all, the scope of this plant is not at all what I'd imagined. I, I expected it to be just a garbage dump. Um, but instead, I get, it's what I imagine to be, a, you know, essentially a modern recycling plant. And there are these huge caterpillar trailers and, you know, tractors uh, running around the plant. Uh, and it's this, and there are these huge steel floors. And the scope, the scale of the place is just, uh, you know, really awesome. It's like and, acres is what I'm Yeah, trying. it's just, just huge. It takes a long, long time to talk their way into the plant. If they enter, all work at the recycling center has to stop. But, incredibly, finally, they are allowed in, under one condition. We would have 15 minutes uh, to search this pile, um, uh, but that's all we could have. Which, um, you know, put a lot of pressure on us. Uh, although, I'm not sure we understood how much pressure it would put on us until... Um, they dumped the garbage out of the trailer. So, so they, they dumped the garbage out of the trailer. And, 
Even though the trailer was large, I, I guess I'd kind of underestimated how much garbage can go in a trailer that size. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they dumped this out on the floor. And of course, it, it spread out. So it occupied this, you know, really massive space on the floor. And it was this full of this kind of brown sludge and liquid and, um, and, and, and just tens of thousands of plastic bags floating, essentially. Not really floating, but kind of oozing in this in this, this soggy sort soggy of. mess exactly and uh, I took one look at this pile and my heart truly sank you know because I just thought I mean I don't even know where to begin a number of uh, the people who came with me kind of jumped in and immediately started ripping open bags um, trying to uh, um, trying to find the bear. And so after, you know, 30 seconds or so of, of kind of taking in the enormity of the thing, I just sort of plunged into uh, this pile along with them. And uh, watching us do it, um, these garbage men, the, the folks who were uh, running the recycling plant, uh, at least four or five of them put on their gloves and started doing the same thing with us. Um, so there were, at this point, there were a group of maybe eight or nine of us pulling apart bags. Um, frantically looking for this bear. Seven or eight minutes into it, I, uh, um, I really uh, I just despaired of uh, ever finding the bear. And I couldn't believe it. You know, we'd come this far, uh, you know, and it just seemed uh, that it ought to work out, but I, I didn't see how it would. It, just, it was just too big. And I remember um, saying to myself, you know, Tony, you know, if you're here, you're really just going to have to kind of appear on the surface because there's there's just no way. You know, I mean, the only way this is going to happen is, uh, you know, if, 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 if you kind of make yourself appear. And uh, um, the next thing I knew, uh, I was holding the bear. Wait a second. What do you mean? You mean you picked up a plastic bag? And I picked you up a plastic bag, and there he was. And he was in a plastic bag, so he was completely dry and, uh, you know, unscathed. <laughs> How do you explain that? Oh, I don't. You know, I, I'm a rationalist. I'm not religious. I'm not, you know... Uh, particularly, I'm not really uh, spiritual in any way. Uh, I'm, a, you know, I'm a labor negotiator. I don't explain it. I think what's, you know, the thing that's strange to me is 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 not just the way I found him, but we had eight or nine people looking, you know, and you know why why was I the one who found him? Because you were touched by an angel that wanted to save you a hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> John Holtzman is an attorney in San Francisco. The hotel that deployed its forces to get the bear back, I feel like we should give them credit. Let's say their name on the air. It's the Sheraton Anaheim. But one last note. Here is the thing about being a father, being a parent. John gets the bear. His whole squad is giddy, completely giddy, on the drive back to the hotel. And there he calls his son to give him the news. He was really, really happy, but there was also a, you know, a slightly kind of of course-ish response to the thing, which is, well, good. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you got the bear. 
he doesn't quite understand it for the heroic gesture that it is. <laughs> I think that's true. He's like, oh yeah, Dad went down and got the bear. That's completely true. The theme to Star Wars is not playing in his head as that <laughs> happens. <laughs> Two, trip down memory lane. Joel Meyerowitz is a photographer, grew up in New York City. In the 1970s, his parents moved to Florida. Joel would visit for a few days at a time. As time passed, his father, High, developed Alzheimer's. Before he retired, High was a salesman for 40 years. He did a few years as a comic and a vaudeville act before that. He was a boxer, won his weight class in the first Golden Gloves competition. But now that he had Alzheimer's, the doctor said that he should stay inside, avoid a lot of stimulation. His son, Joel, thought... What if we tried, for a brief time, something different? He wanted to have one last adventure with his father, one last road trip, before the Alzheimer's made it impossible to have more adventures. Joe also hoped that maybe, being on the road, visiting places that he'd been, going back to the old neighborhood one more time, might spark some memories that had been gone for his dad, that had been long, long vanished. It was a gift to his dad. So, they got a camera, they went on a three-week trip, driving from Fort Lauderdale back to New York City. Joe Meyerowitz's son, Sasha, filmed lots of the trip. You actually hear his voice only a few times in this footage I'm about to play you. When they set out on the trip, Sasha was 27, Joe was 57, High was 87. you know what ocean this is? Well, I'll be honest with you, Joel, I don't remember. Yeah. Cat, not Catskills. Not Ocean? That's because of mountains. Yeah. This is an ocean. Uh-huh. Which one? Well, I don't know. Is it the Pacific or the Atlantic? I would take it as Pacific. You would? Yeah. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wrong. So which one is it? Then? I would use permission. The permission, right. The permission. The permission. The permission. The ocean. I am on the permission. Why do you ask me so early in the morning a question like that? Born. 109, two, one, uh, 109, 207, no, 109-207-6-9-1-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-5-9-0-
they get him. And the scenes I remember are that people would gather in front of our window and they'd yell, Jaime! Hey, Jaime! And he'd come to the window and he would adjudicate from the window. He would say, no, no, you shouldn't do that, and he should do this, and you get that, and let him alone. And it was like the judge. Here we come, baby. And I want you to know. Hey, uh, hello. 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 Hey, Pop. What? You know what this reminds me of? No. Does that remind you of Melvin? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. what I was thinking. I never, you didn't think of the name at that time. Tell, do you remember Melvin? Yeah, sure I remember him. What was Melvin? It was a little Chinese, <laughs> little little bird. A parakeet. Parakeet, right. I didn't Do you remember the things that Melvin said? He called us, he spoke to us, and he also called his name out. Yeah, and how did he say it? Do you remember? Hi, Melvin. I'm Melvin. Isn't it hi, Melvin? No, he said, I'm, I'm Melvin what? Melvin Melvin? I'm Melvin Marowitz. Melvin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me the story of the time he I, got I can't tell you about it. Look at this. I can't tell you about it. Look at this. Another one comes. Hi, boys. Hello. Hello. We know you. We know your grandfather. Pop, remember how he used to say, my name is Melvin Meyerowitz. Yes. I'm a Jewish bird. Yes. Yes. That comes back to you? I know. it. You I didn't. It, it didn't. But that... Good morning, Dr. Goldberg. Oh, yeah. Whenever Dr. Goldberg came to visit Mom when she was sick. Yeah. And do you remember the time the bird flew away across the Bronx? He, he went out the door on Mom's shoulder, and he flew away. We were all so heartbroken that the bird was gone. And then some woman called up. You remember? She called Mom, and she said, Do you have a bird named Melvin? My mother said, Yeah, we have, we have a bird. It was a green and yellow parakeet. And the woman said, Well, the bird landed on my window and said, my name is Melvin Meyerowitz. I'm a Jewish bird. And I looked you up in the phone phone book, and uh, I called the Meyerowitz, and they said, "No, no, that's my uh, my brother High's bird." <laughs> we went and we got the bird back. You remember that? No. I'm surprised. Come on, you want to go? Want to go? Don't fall. Take it easy. Take it easy. You want to go? With the onset of memory loss, it's not only his memories that are fading away, but it's the memories that I shared with him that are fading away. So I could no longer um, say to him, hey, Pop, remember we did this? And have him say, yes, that was fantastic, remember it. So I found myself progressively um, left alone with my memories. And, and then you look at your own memories and you realize, I've got this handful of really insignificant things and I've made them my world, my world of memory. And it's astonishing how the few things that I recall to share with him are minor notes, you know, the bird or the, the few, the handful of things that I ask him. So that's, that was really, <laughs> that was a lesson for me about what it is that rises up out of our experience that we hold on to.
Yes. I want to ask you a few questions about the family. About our family. About our family. Yes. You've got three sons. Yes. What are their names? Joel, Ricky. And who's your youngest son? The youngest one is, I think it's David. I, I, didn't, I don't remember the name anymore. Joel, Rick, and? Joel, Ricky, and? Yeah. Stevie. Stevie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you know what Do you know what Rick does to make a living? What is what his career well, is? He tries to do a lot of a lot of stuff. He if, he if he were following me, he'd be doing it on the crook. But uh, what's he famous for? Ricky. Yeah. Well, he's first place. He's uh, my kids. You are also. And because that alone gives you enough fame. So you don't remember what Rick does? Ricky? Rick is a uh, half-time, a part-time book. I don't know the trade names. Get, you're getting closer, Bob. Just try, get, try get, to think about what Rick does. Rick, Rick is an artist. Right. You got it. Not what? You got it, you got it right. And <clears throat> And I'm Joel. What do I do? <laughs> You're a doll. You're my best number one. Come on, get serious, Pop. Do you remember what it is I do? What, is, what do I do? You make money. <laughs> I was telling you, you wanted to give it to you straight off the street. What's my profession? What's what? What's my profession? What's your most attachment? What's my profession? Your profession. Now I got to figure out. I don't know, crook or seafood, whatever. Uh, I you're known as an artist, serious artist, in the art field. Okay. What about Stevie? What's uh, Stevie's business? Judy. Stevie. Stevie. I don't know. Does it bother you that you can't remember your kids' names sometimes and you can't remember what they do? Well, I tell you, yeah. I see them, hello, goodbye, and that's it. I'm not complaining. Is it hard to see him like this? Do you, does it feel painful? Honestly, it's, uh, it's sad. I mean, I, I have a feeling of sadness, but I also have a feeling of acceptance. We've been apart for 20 years in this, in the mutual prime of our lives. When I was raising my children and he was a grandparent, we weren't together. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just accepting of where he is. I, if we had been together for 20 years and I had seen the decline and I had been relating to him emotionally and lovingly all that time, I might feel a deeper sadness. But even though he's my father, the distance that we've been apart all these years has put some kind of a buffer in there. So this is the guy that I know now.
we have a much closer relationship in the way we see each other and talk to each other and, and have continuity. I just know at one point you said to him, he was your hero, which I thought was so sweet, and then I thought it must be hard to see. A hero fall. Yeah. Well, he was my hero. He had my childhood hero. But that's so far away, I can't relate to the sadness of, of that. I mean, I, I love him in that unequivocal way that a child loves a parent. And I feel when I care for him, a, a kind of re... I guess a, a renewal or a, or a rebirth of feeling in this period. I know when I take him after a shower and I rub him down, I actually feel his head in my hands and I feel his flesh in my hands. It's been many years since I had that kind of contact with my father. And it was a little strange at first. I thought, you know, what's it like to rub this other person's body, touch this other person's body? There's a, a slight deference. And then I realized it's my pop. You know, and he's, he's in need. He can't take care of himself this way. Mom? Okay, here's Papa, Mom. Hold on. Okay, here comes Dad. Joel? Is it my Joel? Don't you know who I am? Who? What do you mean, how come I'm on the phone? Don't, don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. It's very important because I've been traveling. I, didn't, it's been I think my father had you know, a classic marriage uh, of his generation. He loved my mother. She was beautiful and hot-tempered, an exciting person to be with. But he wanted something from her that either he didn't know how to get or she couldn't give. And that was a kind of mother love that he himself hadn't experienced. Huh? Yes, I'm okay. No, we're not having a good time. Are you having a good time? You are, really? Okay, I want you to be healthy and strong and, and, and smile, Sally. You know, his mother had, had been bedridden after his birth, and then she died soon after, so he never really knew her. That's the deepest groove in his memory, which is, I think, unrequited love. Don't uh, get down the judges, because right now I'm beginning the first one of Joel's tests and I will be back at home maybe, who knows, a couple of months from now. I don't know, Sally. Would you go with me the next trip? Would you go with me the next trip? Okay. All right, May. Take care, sweetheart. Be careful, will you? Be careful. Bye-bye. And I think that, you know, from my point of view now, um, that if he had really just loved my mother without demanding something from her or needing something from her, which was that childhood need, that she probably would have just loved him back for the kind, warm, funny man that he was. But because there was something that he was demanding, 
she couldn't give it to him. A kind of perverse logic of relationship occurred. She's mad. She's mad about something. She's <laughs> mad about me. I didn't do nothing. Why is she mad? She's mad, that's all. She, she sounded very, very bad. She sounded like she didn't care. No, she probably was caring a lot. Oh, sure. Which is why she was mad yeah. that we didn't call. I, I waver also when I, when I think of her being by herself. And I would rather be there than be here. But you're having such a good time here. Yeah, I'm, 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 to my limit, I'm having what I like. I would love to do, love to be involved with. But the idea is that I always have to include Mama. Throughout the trip, he asks for Sally every single day. Where's Sally? Where's Mom? Thinking that you know, she should have been in the car next to him. Sally! Did you leave your Sally upstairs there? Yeah, Pop, we said goodbye to Mom. No kidding, right? Because I know this right here, there's nothing, no Sally. I thought this was Sally all bundled up, and I see it's not bundled up. It's your pillow. That, that pillow's going to have to be your Sally. Yeah, the yeah, the pillow. Months, Oh, you guys are starting to pull them tricks on me now. I know, I know, I know. Wait, is she, was she here? Nope. That's your pillow, Pop. Jesus Christ almighty. I know she's not in a trunk. You wouldn't do that to her. I'm not, I'm naive when it comes to this show. You know, I'm not the, the smartest and the cutest in the strippers. I went, I, <laughs> if my mommy, if my mommy don't come up and then don't come down in five minutes, I want to know where she is. This is my wife. Are the betters in the trunk? Are the in the trunk? I wouldn't be surprised me. There was a time when we were driving with her in Florida before we made the film. And she was sitting right next to him and he leaned over to me and he said, where's mom? And I said, well, who's sitting next to you? And he looked over at this person sitting next to him. He said, where's Sally? That's not Sally. wonderful dancer and athlete and a natural comic and I guess Charlie Chaplin was the rage and just as there are Elvis imitators there were Chaplin imitators and my father he became a Chaplin imitator and um, he would have he had that act that I guess he took on on the road or around the vaudeville circuit in New York I was trying to fit in myself to all the years with the joking I was trying to be a chaplain. I didn't know if I was doing that right or wrong, but I saw that poor little guy, that he bent down and picked something up, everybody would give him a kick in the ass. That was what I used to see. That is what I didn't want to happen to me. 
What was it that you liked about Charlie Chaplin that made you want to do the Charlie Chaplin act? He, he was he was a giant and in the height of a little midget. He was a little guy, writing all the wrongs, helping others. As he passed by, we pat him on the top of the head. He would remember that there, and just a minute, he'd, he'd, he'd look at a little party, a little person having no money or no nothing, and he would go and, and inside, and he'd come out here like this, and shake his shoulders, and then, then travel on. And that was what I loved. The goodness, the goodness. And they, not everybody understood him, but those that understood him, they would put their arm around him, and he would do the same with them. It's a beautiful deed for the day. Did you feel connected to him in that way? Always, always, always. always. With Alzheimer's disease, most memory finally dissolves and and, uh, even though he was a man who was easily lovable, I think he forgot that these were his his qualities, and that he was in fact loved by people, um, faded from his memory. And at the end of his life, he remembers a few of the more painful things, that he's a motherless child, that he was not loved the way he wanted to be loved. And it's amazing that with with uh, the, the murkiness of Alzheimer's clouding everything, that something as as primal as as uh, you know being an unloved child um, stayed with him. When anybody would show a little bit something to me that I was accepted, and they would talk to me, they pat me on the top of the head or put their hands around me. I'm home. I loved everybody. I loved everybody, but nobody saw me. Nobody remembered me. Nobody knew me. Nobody saw me. But I was there. And to this very day, I have the same thing. I have poor mommy. I have her, and she doesn't see me. She doesn't see me. Well, you boys saw you. We all saw you. I loved when you were the strong man in the neighborhood. I loved when you were the chaplain figure in the comic. I loved the way you drove the car. You were such a great driver. talk to people. You could talk to the big guys or the little guys and you made them all the same, Pop. I used to I used to think of you as the great equalizer. You could take a guy who was a doctor or a principal of a school or a businessman and you can take you can take another guy who was just a an ordinary worker and you would treat them the same. And you would bring them all to the same level and that would be the level of laughter. Me. 
You saw Papa. That's right. Joe Meyerowitz, his father High, his son Sasha. In the years since they recorded that footage, High has died. Joe and Sasha cut their footage into a film. It's called Pop. It aired on the PBS show Frontline. This September, Joe was putting out a book called Aftermath with his large format photos from the Ground Zero site in New York City. Coming up, can a dad try too hard? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers and performers to tackle that theme. Today's program, for Father's Day, we bring you stories of kids trying to care for and protect their dads, and dads trying to protect and care for their kids. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, Age of Enchantment. Lawrence Weschler is an author and journalist. He used to write a lot for The New Yorker magazine. This story is about his attempt to protect his daughter Sarah from disappointment and to thrill her and how, with the best of intentions, all of this went awry and led to an odd breach of trust between father and child. He and Sarah went into a studio in New York City to tell us this story. At the time, Sarah was 11 years old. The story begins simply enough. Uh, She would get into very active conversations with the characters in the books while we were reading. So, for example, when we were reading Little House on the Prairie, um, there would be these moments where she would interrupt my reading and say, wait a second, I want to talk to the Indian, and we'd have to go look for a picture of the Indian. And she'd say to the Indian, now look, Indian, in a few pages you're going to meet Laura, but you've got to be, uh, you know, understand, I know she's taking your land, but it's not her fault, she's just a kid. Now let me talk to Laura. And we'd go back and we'd talk to Laura. And in these things, I would take on the role of the Indian, and I'd say things like, you know, who's that talking and so forth. And we would have these incredibly elaborate conversations. Do you remember that, Sarah? Yes. Anyway, this sort of thing would go on all the time, and, and uh, at a later point, we began reading the Borrowers series, the series of wonderful books by Mary Noble. Norton. Mary, excuse me. Norton. By Mary Norton, that's right. And uh, well, should Sarah describe uh, what the book is about, maybe? Sure, Sarah. Explain what the Borrowers are like. Well, the Borrowers, it's about these little people who are, I think, like four inches tall, and they live... <clears throat> under the floorboards in the house. And what they do is they take things from people, little things, that they can use around their house. So what kinds of things do they take? Well, they take pocket watches and um, and stamps for, like, pictures on the wall. 
And part of the point about borrowers is that they're not allowed... Are, are they allowed to talk to people? No. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, because they think that people can really hurt them, because according to the book, it's happened before. Right. So anyway, we were reading this book, and one day I came home, and Sarah was incredibly excited. Her face was just glowing. She said, Daddy, you won't believe it. We have borrowers here in our own house. And my memory is that... that uh, Maybe you remember this differently, Sarah, but my memory was that she said she went to a particular place in the basement and she pointed at this little kind of hole in the wall in the basement on the, near the floor, and she said, I was coming down the stairs, and there was one of them standing right there, a little girl, and she was wearing a pink taffeta skirt. That's what you said. And, and I froze, and she froze, and we looked at each other, and I knew I wasn't supposed to talk to her, that she shouldn't talk to me, but we just looked at each other. And after, after about 30 seconds, she kind of waved her hand just slightly, and she ran away. And it was right there, and Sarah took me to the place where it was. And Sarah, and, let me just ask you, what do you remember of this? Well, I remember having seen... Well, you see, it's like... It's so strange to say this, because, like, um, it's so feel, I feel like I'm betraying the borrowers. But I still believe in them. Um, and... Like, if I ever actually got to meet one, I'd never tell anyone. And um, I do remember having seen something. And it wasn't really for 30 seconds. It was, like, for maybe 10 seconds, and then it ran away. And even now, when you think about it, you can picture. You can yes. picture seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I, it wasn't, I didn't imagine it. It was, it was definitely there. And it was a little girl? Yeah, I think. Okay. <laughs> and then, over the next few days, Sarah began leaving things for... Uh, for this borrower. And the first thing in the morning, she would race downstairs to see whether the things had been picked up. Do you remember what kind of things you left? I left, um, like, sometimes I'd leave, like, toothpicks or pieces of food. Um, what do they use toothpicks for? Oh, just, like, to dig with and, you know... Um, kind of an all-purpose tool. Yeah. Yeah. Walking stick. Yeah. Things like that. Anyway, so she would leave these things there, and she would be so disappointed, and disappointment verging on desolation, that, that they weren't picked up. And she'd have long conversations with me. She said, you know, why aren't they picking them up? Don't they know that I'm giving it to them? And I would try to explain that maybe maybe uh, they were scared or nervous or something. That's how borrowers are. But she was so sad. And this went on. I figured this would end, but at a certain point, this went on for like a week. And... Uh, I don't know why I did it, because it began a cascade of consequences. But uh, but one night, I picked up the stuff and put it in my pocket. And the next morning, she came bounding up the stairs saying, Daddy, you won't believe it. There are borrowers. Just like I said, they took the stuff. They took the stuff. And she was transported with delight. And I figured that would be the end of it, but it wasn't. What what happened? What happened next, Sarah? I started writing to them. I started writing letters. Okay, let's. Why don't you, why don't you ask you to pull out one of those letters and, okay. and let's hear what, what you wrote I'll read for the, the first, first one. one. Okay. Now you were six at the time, right? Seven. Seven. Dear borrowers, I have seen you, but I want to meet you. If I do, I will not tell anyone, without your permission. Agreed or not agreed. And then this is borrowers. Well, well then what, what, just one second. So, so what happened is that that, that note on a yellow, little yellow post-it lay by the hole for several days. And for several mornings, Sarah would be completely devastated that it had not been answered. So 
I went through several days of not quite knowing what to do because she was getting more and more sad about this and more concerned. And so then I figured, well, it won't do any harm to pick up the piece of paper and write little tiny message back, which I did. Do you have that there as well? Yeah, it's on the same piece of paper. Okay, so... so um. Dear Sarah, gosh, this is strange. Who are you? How do you know about borrowers? I thought no human beings ever knew about us. My dad says it's too dangerous for borrowers to meet a human being, but, and he even says I mustn't write to you, but maybe at least I can write. Will you write back? I hope so. I will keep it a secret from my dad. Signed, Annabelle Lee. P.S. I am 11. How about you? And, um, and so you got this. Do you remember getting this letter? You remember that morning what you said when you came up the stairs? No. What, what did she say? Do you remember? Oh, she was just saying, they are, I told you, I told you, and she answered, she answered, and she wants me to write back, and, and she was, it was just, she was over the moon, and she wrote back immediately. Yeah. So, 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 Ren, did you conceive of, of your borrowers as being descendants of the borrowers in the book? Well, it was unclear. I mean, uh, it was a possibility. And it was up to Sarah to keep dredging and find out more. And so there, a, a large part of the correspondence is Sarah doing genealogical work on the family <laughs> and asking all kinds of questions. Yeah, I, I would ask, like, what was your grandmother's name? And it turned out and that her grandmother was Arietti, which is the main character. Main character and in there, the book. Yeah. And she says that she calls her dad P, like as in a P pod, because in the book, the dad is pod. And, um, oh. And then she calls her mom Hami, because in the book the mo- mother is Homily. Um, how how long did the letters go back and forth? How many letters were there? I think there were, well, there there were over seventeen, because I didn't finish counting, but I counted up to seventeen. And um, Ren, during this time, were you frightened about where this was all going to lead? That at some point you would get found out? Well, it was getting strange, and uh actually kind of nerve-wracking. And I would do things like, I kept on figuring that, that Sarah was going to grow out of this and that, or that Sarah would uh, would associate, uh, would make the association that it was, this was kind of like what we used to do with, when I would read about the Indian or about Laura. I kept on thinking that she would just kind of enjoy that, but, but she was getting more and more into it and it was becoming more and more involved. And the more involved, the more I could see how invested Sarah was in it. I mean, it really was the main thing going on in her life during that season. And as she began telling friends about it and so forth, the stories had to get more and more elaborate to include all the the stray bits of of, uh, of details that were seeping into things. Uh, and I, I didn't quite know where it was going to go. I, I would do things. I would send, I would send the borrowers on vacations. You would send them on vacations? I would send them, I'd just have them suddenly disappear for a while. And they'd be gone for a while, and I would hope that by the time it was over, Sarah would have forgotten. But on the day, you know, if I'd said they'd be gone three day, three weeks, three weeks later on that day, <laughs> there'd be a note for them from Sarah. Uh, and and Sarah, did you suspect at that point? Or no, no, I, I really hadn't. Like, the second I started to suspe- I suspected it. It was like, just I was almost sure that it had been him, and I just went up and asked him if it was him. Why is it that you started to suspect? Do you remember what happened that made you suspect? I think it was sort of the fact, not his handwriting, actually. It was that I would tell my dad, for instance, um, that I was in the basement. I stuck my finger into this hole. I felt something sort of like silky or something. 
it was probably just some like old piece of cloth that was stuck there, but I felt and I told my dad and it sort of slipped away from my finger. I told my dad about it and um then in the next letter I'd hear uh, Annabelle would be saying, Oh um, I think that was that you who touched me when I was wearing my silk dress and so I started to think like, you know, I tell my dad things that that sometimes I'd exaggerate a little bit, you know, because like when I was younger, I exaggerated some things. I made things a little bit more exciting than they might have really been. And then, like, I I read the letter, and it had that exaggerated part in it, like, and so I'd say, like, well, that didn't really happen. I was just, like, sort of adding that to the my my story. And so that's, so I, like, That made I, you suspicious. Yeah, and I asked my dad. Well, and so what happened there was uh, I was, we had moved to the new house. We'd been there for a couple months at that point. And I was down in the basement, you know, moving some boxes around. And Sarah came down there, and and how how old how old she's now she's now eight, eight yeah okay in this story yeah yeah at this point in the story yeah and and she uh, says and she began looking she was her lips were trembling her lower lip was trembling and she she looked at me very firmly as she is quite capable of doing and she said, Daddy, I'm going to ask you a question now and you have to tell the truth because it's a sin. For daddies to lie to their daughters, and my heart just sank. And she said, "Daddy, are you the one who's been writing Annabelle's notes?" And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and there was like silence for five or six seconds. And then I said, "Um, you know, it's kind of complicated. Can we talk?" About it? And she said, "Daddy, it's not complicated. It's simple. Are you the one?" And I said, "Well, can we talk about it?" It later said, no, just tell me, are you the one or not? And I took a big breath and I said, yes, it is me. And she broke I was into... crying. Oh, God, was she so was sobbing. She, she started sobbing. It was easily the most wrenching thing that had happened in my parenthood up to that point. I mean, I had totally blown it. I just felt total disaster. And... And I was crying, and she was crying, and you know, we were both kind of clutching each other and holding each other, and and it was we were really in a trap there. We were we were down the hole at that point. We were in big trouble, and Sarah, and suddenly this kind of calm came over Sarah's face. It was kind of like the sun rising in the morning, and her forehead stopped being furrowed; it became smooth, and she just looked at me and she said. Daddy, don't you realize you ruined everything? Because there are borrowers, and you were taking the letters before they were able to get them. And it was a way of, she had solved everything there, because uh, among other things, that was what she was going to be able to, t to tell her friends, and they could all chortle about what kind of a of a crazy father she had. <laughs> uh, and and it, it, it was amazing. She found a way of getting us out of this disaster that, that I suppose I had fashioned for us. I remember saying that, you know, you should have left it there. Maybe they would have really written back. You shouldn't have done it because maybe they would have actually written back to me after, at, finally at some point. Like I said earlier, I still believe in them. And I know that may sound really babyish to some kids who might be, who might listen to this, but I still believe in them. And, um, and when I told Megan, my friend, when I told Megan that it had been my dad, she stopped believing in them, and she was just like, whenever I talk about it from then on, she'd laugh at me and tell me like, "Oh, Sarah, stop being a baby," because she was she's a year older than me, so she, at that time, she still considered herself like, really superior to me, even though we were best friends, and um, she said, "Oh, Sarah, stop being a baby. It's not true," 
it's just not true. And I said, but I've seen them. And she said, no, you haven't. You just imagined it. And it's not true. And you can just stop imagining it and stop telling me about it because it's not true. How do you feel about it now when you looked at those letters? I don't know. Like, sometimes when I read them, I still sort of can think that, you know, I wonder why this happened to her. I wonder why that happened to her. I wonder why she would say that. Even though I know that it was my dad writing to me, I still sometimes sort of think of there being an, an Annabelle somewhere out there. When we pulled out the box last night of letters, did, did it bring you pleasure to look at those letters? Did you? Well, actually, I look at it a lot. You do a lot? Yeah. You look at it a lot? Yeah. And what do you think when you look at it? Well, I just think it was sort of, now looking back, it was sort of nice of him to do that because, like, I remember when it was happening and after I'd figured out that it was him, um, I had asked him, well, can we still sort of write to each other? It never, we, we never really actually wrote to each other after that, but I just sort of thought after a while that it was a nice thing and that even though maybe there was no borrower writing to me, there was um, maybe having my dad make up this whole family was maybe just as special or maybe almost as special as having actually been writing to a borrower. Sarah, can I ask you, what do you think the, the lesson of this story is? That is, if parents hear you tell the story, you and your dad tell the story on the radio, and if another parent gets into this kind of situation, what's your advice for them? Should they go along with it? Should they write letters and should they pick up stuff? I don't know, because like it was really fun for me to have this kind of experience, but when I found out that it was my dad writing, it was really upsetting me. And so I just... I don't know. I think that I wouldn't, if I were a parent and I had that kind of thing, I would not pick it up. You would not? No, I would, I would keep encouraging my kid to, or my child to keep on writing to the um, buyers and trying to get them to write back, but I wouldn't pick it up. What do they keep coming to you so, so sad every morning, that the way you were sad coming to me and just pleading, I wish, I wish, I wish they would come. Can you imagine ever picking it up? No. Really? It just... I don't think it's fair to lead someone on like that. Ren, as far as you're concerned, what's the lesson of the story? If you had this to do again, if you would get into into this situation again, or if you could go back with the benefit of hindsight, what what would you do? Would you have left the letters? <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say that had I to live it over again, I wouldn't do it this way, but I'm not sure because there was it was a... It started so naturally. And in the end, by the way, what I'd have to say is probably the the most poignant, closest, amazing moment I've had as a single, you know, the moment I'll remember of, of a particular phase of my life is that, is the holding on to each other in the basement, both of us crying, but, but Sarah not running away and Sarah saving us and... That kind of cemented our relationship in a in a really kind of wonderful way. So I mean, you know, I I, I don't. It might it, not end that way for everybody. It, yeah, it might not end that way for everybody. That's true. It was. It's. A, I I continue to 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 puzzle about it, and it's, it is unresolved for me. And uh, as my answer is indicating, I suppose. It, it's interesting to me that the, the way that you view the lesson of the story is that Sarah saved the two of you. That as a parent, you got yourself into a moment where you literally didn't know what to do. And and that and that she finally said the thing that made everything okay. Yeah, I absolutely feel that. 
Has it affected our relationship, do you think? Do you, do, you not, do you not trust me in a way you used to trust me? No. No, no, I still trust you. Sarah, do you view this as, as, as one of the moments when you were closest to your dad? Well, I'm very close to my dad, so I don't know. Like, It's like, yeah, I guess so, but it's not like much closer than I am usually because I'm very close to my dad like all the time. But yeah, it is one of the times that I was closest, I guess. Yeah. So my, my, my heart is in my throat. Lawrence Weschler, he's now the artistic director of the Chicago Humanities Festival, and he's the author of many books, including his latest, Everything That Rises, A Book of Convergences. Sarah is now 19. This past year, she's been teaching kindergarten in a remote village in Tanzania. She goes off to college in the fall. Back when we recorded this interview eight years ago, she said that even at the time that we were recording the interview, she still believed in the borrowers. In fact, she said she was going to listen to the story, but um, not in the house. She was going to listen in the car. I don't want us to listen to it at the house because if there are still borrowers in our house, I don't want them to hear that and like think that they can't trust me because it's right now I'm like telling their whole story. I'm like sort of, I feel like I'm sort of betraying them, you know, and I just like wanted to make sure that they knew that, you know, if I actually did meet one, I wouldn't tell anyone. I would never tell a single person in the world. Well, our program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Lily Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Jorge Just. Contributing editors for this show, Paul Tuff, Jack Hit, Margie Rocklin, and Consul Yuri Saraval. Production help from Todd Bachman, Sylvia Lima, Sativa January, and Seth Lind. Special thanks today to Marilyn Snell, to Armand Brott, and to Howard Monty and Seal at KQED. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to all of our programs and our archives for absolutely free, 24 hours a day. Or you know you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by Volkswagen of America and the Volkswagen Jetta, reminding listeners that safe can happen anywhere, anytime. Volkswagen Jetta, safe happens. And by Pals.com, the web's source for new and used books, staff recommendations, uncensored reviews, and, of course, books on the web at Pals.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who declares every time someone chooses not to pledge to this radio station. I feel like I've lost my spirit. I'm Eric Glass. Uh, to my dad, Barry Glass, off in Baltimore, Maryland, happy Father's Day, Dad. And see you soon in New York City, okay? To all the rest of you, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.